1995, in a very tragic way, he um, murdered her. Um, and we just, you know, really never, never had a sense of the justice system. He was not held accountable for his crime. So that started this long journey that I'm on. That's Mitha Vasquez on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. Ask yourself, what would you do if your mom was murdered just as you were getting started as a young adult? I'm going to let Mitha share her story, but I think it's safe to say that it is everyone's worst nightmare. It's one thing to lose a parent, but it's something quite different to lose them tragically before their time. How do you find purpose in life after that? How do you deal with the grief that has been parked in the back of your mind for many years? How do you move forward and live a good life? These are some of the questions that I'm going to explore with Mitha. My name is Mike Kearney, your host. And after spending nearly three decades at Deloitte, I am devoting my life to helping people sing their song as a coach and as a podcast host. These stories of rock bottom and redemption are the inspiration for the podcast. If you have lived through a tragedy, this may be the conversation that you've been waiting for. Mitha's journey is not linear. She didn't just grieve and move forward. Quite to the contrary. From the exterior, she was able to pick up the pieces and create a very successful life. Great job, MBA, a strong marriage for almost 30 years, incredible kids, all the stuff we work so hard to achieve. But Mitha parked the pain in the back of her mind for much of her life, and it showed up at the least likely time. And that's when Mitha's story comes to life, when she confronted the grief from many years ago so that she could live life on her terms. So let's get to it. My conversation with Mitha Vasquez. Mitha Vasquez, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. Well, thank you, Mike. Glad to be here and thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, Mitha, I know that you've got a deeply tragic story that really has had a profound impact on your life. And we're going to get into this as well as what you have done to manage through it over the years. But first, I would love just to spend a few minutes getting to know you. Uh, can you share your story a bit about who you are? Well, um, basically, I'm a working mother of three. I've been married for uh, 27 years. I've had uh, three careers. I was first in the uh, restaurant industry. Then I was an HR executive for many years. I'm now on my third career where I'm in a life and leadership coach. Uh, we've lived uh, in several different places around the U.S., um, mainly traveling for my jobs. Uh, but uh, 20 years ago, we moved back to Texas. And then about a year and a half ago, I moved to Canyon Lake. Uh, the only other really main thing about my background, and um, we'll get into, you know, in a little bit, but I have traveled extensively. I worked for a Fortune 500 company for many, many years, and I've traveled extensively around the world for work um, to six continents and over 35 countries, which I'm blessed because that has opened up my eyes in many ways. So that's just a little bit about me and my background. You know, a lot of my interviews to date have focused on people that are pivoting in their career, and that's really not going to be the focus of today, but I would be remiss if I just didn't ask you, 
you said that you're on your third career uh, and you're doing something similar to me where now you're coaching. And I'm curious, what prompted that change? What drove you into coaching? Well, I was going to cover this a little bit later, but we'll cover it now. Um, uh, part of my story that I'm going to share is that I think this is not uncommon to other people, but I woke up one day and wondered, is there more to life? Which I think um, many people do that, and they have done that after COVID as well. But what happened for me is that I had so many fabulous things in my life. Like I said, I've been married 27 years, have a wonderful husband. I have three adult children that are just absolutely fantastic. Two of them had graduated from university, and we moved to this beautiful house out in the country, and I had a really great career, and I woke up. It was last December, and I'm like, why am I not happy? What's, you know, what's wrong? Isn't that bizarre when you think about it? Because I think there's similarities in my experience where you're like, you know, I've got a great partner. I've got a great life. I live in this beautiful place. You know, life is good, but there's something missing. And that seems like kind of what you ultimately concluded last December. It is. And, you know, I started a journey, um, and we'll get into that later, but I started a journey where I talked to my husband and, you know, like I said, I woke up in December and I'm like, something's not right. And so that started me on a journey to um, go back to therapy, which I have been in therapy off and on for the last 25 years, but not an extended period. And also rehire my executive coach, which I had was very fortunate um, when I was, you know, in corporate America, a company's hired, you know, they hired executive coaches for you. So I contacted him and started with him again. And so that's where I kind of started this journey about whether I want to do something else in my career. It's going to be interesting to connect the dots to what you're doing now to your story. So let's, let's get into that story. Um, I know that your, your mom died tragically about 30 years ago. I think it was actually 28, but, but about three decades ago, I'm going to let you share the story. Um, so what happened? So my mother, um, and I've learned a lot over the last few months, um, was, you know, all her adult life married to alcoholics. And I, you know, been slowly putting the pieces together over time. She was married to my father, who was a violent, abusive alcoholic. Um, she eventually divorced him. But when I went away to college, she married another abusive alcoholic and of course we knew that at the time but I think you just don't put the pieces together and in 1995 in a very tragic way he um, murdered her um, and we just you know really never never had a sense of the justice system he was not held accountable for his crime so that started this long journey that I'm on. Oh my gosh. So when, when you go back to that, you said that you kind of knew he was an alcoholic, but was it that you didn't know that that was inside of him? Meaning, I don't know, ultimately murdering your mom? Well, so the life of alcoholism and addiction is a life of secrecy. 
And so there's also a lot of avoidance there. So there was no secret that my mother had remarried an alcoholic. But what goes on behind doors to the extent that it goes on behind closed doors, you are not always aware. And so, you know, what happened is, and I don't know all the circumstances, they lived on a houseboat, they were sailors, they sailed all around the Caribbean, um, that was the life that she had, you know, chosen, I suppose, after retiring, and she was officially lost at sea, um, and never found. Um, the FBI told me that they could not investigate because it happened in international waters, but they did tell me that they truly believed that he killed her in a drunken rage. Oh my gosh. So it's almost like your worst nightmare coming to fruition, losing your mom, and then to a certain degree, to a large degree, feeling hopeless because there's no justice. Even even though they told you that that's likely what happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically at that time, they just closed the book on it and said, there's absolutely nothing that we're going to do. Um, they don't really have jurisdiction. It's kind of a, a he said situation only. There's no other party there. Um, so you're just kind of at lost um, on what the next step is. So what did you do? I'm trying to put myself in a situation, once again, so traumatic and just how I would respond. Like, how did you respond after you got the news? Basically, that's, I hid the grief for 27 years. That's ultimately what I did. Um, it was about the only way I could deal with, deal with it is to compartmentalize it um, and not go through the grieving process. So when you say you, you kind of put it on pause, you kind of just put it out of your mind? Well, yeah. I mean, I went through what you would call like a, a typical, well, I think what we call, what we think of as a typical grieving process, which right. is kind of, you know, crazy to think about now. But if somebody passes, you know, um, like it, you have a work colleague or a family friend and somebody passes, we have the thought that the grief process is like, okay, they're going to take a few weeks off from work and they'll be sad for a while right. and then they'll be okay. And that's basically what people expect of you. So that's what I did. I took a few weeks off and went back to work and, it, and that was it. But it was always in the background. Well, yeah, it was so far back in the background that I let it stay in the background. Mm -hmm. So I basically raised my children, had a very successful career, marriage, made family vacations, but I never grieved her. And then you said 27 years later, you began that process. Was that, was that that day in, in December? Is that what prompted your realization that you just weren't happy? Well, that's kind of what started it. So, um, and I think this is really interesting about um, coaching and what we do, Mike, is that that day in December, I thought that it was my career that I wasn't happy with. 
And so that's when I started the journey, the exploration. I went to my executive coach, talked to him about like things, activities that I really liked. Um, and I started back with my therapist. And I would say that was in January of this year. And I would say after three or four months, I really had a clear picture and a plan with my executive coach um, to start my coaching business, to leave, you know, the corporate setting, set up my, my business. Um, all of that was well underway and moving ahead. However, and that was by spring. So I would say that I was making great headway there. But right around, I don't know, April, May, I told my husband, I'm like, I'm not making progress with therapy. I don't, I didn't know what the issue was, but I'm like, I'm not making progress. And that's when my husband told me to do, it's going to be emotional for me, but that's when my husband told me to do some more research. Mm. And I found grief share. Would you, I know that this is emotional for you. Um, what was just so that people um, hear what you said? You said you found, was it grief share? Grief share. Grief share. So grief share is a, it's a classroom type, type setting. So I do have a, you know, a good sense of humor. And when my husband talked to me about that, um, and if I'm not clear, just ask me to repeat something. Uh, but when my husband said, hey, why don't you maybe research classes on mm. grief? And I looked at him and I'm like, there's no such thing as grief classes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I did. I researched it. And lo and behold, there are classes on grief. Um, and grief share is one of them. Um, and so, uh, in the early summer, I entered a 13 week program called grief share and that program, um, is really like three parts. It, you watch videos of people that have had different losses and the lessons that they've learned. You also have a classroom setting where you talk about the videos and your specific loss. And then you have a workbook that takes you through activities on the loss. So that was part of the journey of me discovering maybe why I was not as happy and fulfilled as I thought I should be. Yeah, you know what I'm, I'm reflecting on um, is the fact that so many people at times are not happy with what they're doing in life, whether it's you know a partner, a career, and I think what you're really raising to the surface is you lived a life for almost three decades where you were putting this, you know, underneath the surface. And then at some point in time, you're like, you know what, I have a great life, but I'm just not happy with what I'm doing. But when you ultimately started to dig, you found something else that was there that you needed to really address, which is obviously your mom's murder. And that's what's absolutely amazing about it and that it's also amazing about what we do mike with the coaching because it it really was not my career now i'm much happier with what i'm doing now and i'm glad to have gone through that process but it was not the underlying issue was my career um it was something else and so you are exactly exactly right um about 
you know, uncovering what the issue is and keep digging. So, so Mitha, I guess to a certain degree, and we'll cover this in a few minutes, you've made this significant change in what you're doing for a living, which is totally exciting. But it sounds like if you also just addressed the underlying issue and you stayed at your old profession, your old career, um, you probably would be in a much better place. And what I mean by that, it's not just a career change that you've now made, which you love, um, but it really is addressing this underlying issue that you ultimately determined. Yeah, I think that part of this process was discovering that I had an underlying issue. Um, so it's kind of like, um, I don't know what you would call it, a flag on the play or a red herring in that I wasn't really happy with my career, but that really wasn't the issue <laughs> at play. I'm doing something more I'm, I like a lot more and I'm enjoying more, but it didn't, res it didn't resolve all of my issues. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really thinking about this because, you know, I've thought oftentimes about why I made a pivot and, you know, it begs the question, is there something else there? And, and quite frankly, one of the things that I've learned in my life is everybody probably has dealt or is dealing with something pretty heady. Now, I think yours probably goes to the extreme, but everybody's dealing with something. And how much does that contribute to people's unhappiness versus, you know, I just don't like the nine to five or being on 12 hours of Zoom calls or whatever is consuming people nowadays where it just makes them not like their job. Yeah, yeah. So that was part of the process. I did learn a lot in Grief Share that I, I guess I didn't expect to learn, like a common language to talk about grief. Um, I also learned too that um, from my particular um, complicated grief, which complicated grief was another terminology I learned, is that just the therapy and the grief share were probably still not going to be enough. Mm. So I, I hired my own coach. I'm working with a coach on that. I'm continually doing reading and research. So it's, it's, it's a process. Himitha, one of the uh, the questions that I was going to ask you, and you just raised it, was: Are there resources that somebody can tap into? You've already provided grief share, but you also indicated um, some reading that you're doing, and maybe other things that are helping you along this journey. But if somebody's listening and they're going through grief, or they're uh, thinking about grief that they've gone through, what other resources would you recommend? Books, authors, podcasts, whatever it may be. Yeah. So there's different. I think what I learned is that there are a lot of resources that just people aren't aware of. So for people that like talking through it, there's definitely therapy, coaching, and the clergy, like any, you know, um, your place of worship. Those are uh, avenues for talking through grief. Um, I mentioned for classroom setting, there's grief share, but also uh, houses of worship also offer formal classes um, for grieving. Most people don't know that. Um, you also have um, your network. And part of the grieving process that I learned is that vocalizing and sharing is very good to do. So you have your family, colleagues, your partner, your children to talk through. 
As far as books and podcasts, what I have found for myself that's very helpful is, this sounds so corny, but to Google your specific situation. So right now I'm reading, um, I'm listening to a book on audio that's very specific to my situation. And I only found it by like putting a search string in on my specific situation with my mother as a battered spouse. Um, so that's helpful. There's also other um, research. I'm going to give you a few of them. There's healgrief.org. And that um, explains like the grieving process and how to get resources. And then there's other things like the National Domestic Violence Hotline and Al-Anon. And Al-Anon helps people for, um, that they have alcohol or drug addiction in their family. And I bring these up is because just what you said earlier, um, that people may be dealing with stuff, but they really don't know the underlying reason. And in my case, um, domestic violence and alcohol were both sources of the issue. You know what, Mitha, I, I just want to, um, I guess, recognize you for is all the hard work you're putting in. I mean, once you identified this as a source of, of grief or an issue, like you're jumping right into it, whether it's going to the class that you talked about, uh, getting therapy, getting a coach, and now you've just listed off all these different resources. And so, you know, I applaud the fact that you're really making this, you know, your life and, and, and figuring out a way that you can not necessarily get past it, but to learn from it so that you can live a great life. I did want to raise one that I found personally helpful. And, uh, if you've got any additional thoughts on this, um, I would love it. Cause one of the things that I've found personally is sharing some challenges that you've gone through with some of your personal friends and not, it's not my story. So I'm not going to go through what it is right now, maybe sometime in the future, but I think we all have, you know, challenges in life and I've certainly had some over the last few years and, and I've shared that with some of my really close friends and actually not even that close of friends. And what I oftentimes find is that other people are going through almost the exact same thing. And what it allowed me to do is almost build an informal group of, of men in this circumstance, although it could have been women, um, where, I had the opportunity to talk to them and share things that I was going through that they had gone through or were going through as well. And it was probably one of the most impactful things that I've personally done to get past some of the challenges that I've faced. It sounds like that was one of the things that you talked about as well, kind of a cohort of people with similar experiences. Um, have you found that to be valuable as well? Yeah, it's part of the healing process, really. So one of the concepts that they teach you in Grief Share is sharing so mm. that telling your story so telling it to even colleagues as you say like they may not have been deep friends but getting your story out there because a lot of people are dealing with pain and they're not sharing it themselves so opening up the door um, to healing by vocalizing what's going on with you you know, what's interesting um, about that is I think people are always so reticent because they feel like they'll be judged. But I think what's what's fascinating is most people are dealing with their own crap. And I always think about it, either they share or they don't share, but it's likely there. And I remember when you shared this story with me, we were on a call with a couple other colleagues and I said, hey, I'm looking for some interviews of people 
where they're now singing in their song where maybe they had to overcome, you know, a significant obstacle. And I was blown away by how transparent and open you were about, hey, listen, I've got, I've got a story if you think it would be interesting. And now here we are having this conversation. And, and what, I, what I find interesting about it is the fact that I feel now closer to you. And we were just, you know, newly friends, I guess, through this program that we were going through. But I think the, the friendships that it could build and the support system is amazing when you just vocalize, you know, the story or the grief that you've gone through. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we do have a common bond and that both of us have faced issues in our family with addiction. And you don't know that unless somebody speaks up, even though my original issue in discussing with you was grief. The core, you know, the cause of the issue was a lifelong, you know, dealing with family addiction. Yep. Absolutely. That was a great connection. Was there someone that was unexpected that really helped you through this process? Hmm. Yeah, I would say that my grief teacher, um, this is very emotional, but my grief teacher was a battered spouse. And I did not expect that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mitha. You said your grief teacher was a, I didn't. A A battered spouse. A battered spouse, okay, thank you. And so while she did that, you know, she was leading the grief class, not because of a death, you know, that's not why she was leading the grief class, but it's just by coincidence that I found out that she was a battered spouse. Yeah. You know, it just keeps going back to, um, you started to figure out that there was grief and once again, you took action And while it may feel somewhat serendipitous that you came, you know, to this class and you had um, a teacher that had a similar experience, maybe it's not so serendipitous because, you know, people tend to go through these type of things and the storylines oftentimes are somewhat similar. So I, I once again, just go back to you taking charge and the lead in dealing with something that once again was almost three decades, because there's a lot of people that would potentially just continue on with their life. Like, "Mm, you know what? That was a long time ago. I don't need to deal with it or it's not that big of a deal. So while I think you did come to her serendipitously, the fact that you put the effort in to get to where you are, once again, is incredible, Mitha. Well, well, thank you. Um, It's it's called delayed grief. I would not highly recommend it. (laughs) So I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you like through this process, what really worked and what didn't? Obviously, it sounds like waiting 27 years is probably not the best approach. Um, But I guess um, when you think about your journey, is there something that really did stand out that you're glad you that you did do? um, And especially over the last year? Well, I think I learned a lot of lessons. um, And because people don't talk about grief um, openly all the time, that you didn't, some of the lessons are like, of course that makes sense. But until you like speak them out loud, <laughs> you don't know that. So one of the things that I learned in grief class is that the pain will not go away faster if you ignore it. So if you try to ignore the pain, it's only going to worsen it in the long run. That was one of the lessons that I learned. Yeah, it's that sneaky pain that just does not go away. 
What about how is this experience overall, whether, you know, it's what happened 27 years ago, what has happened in the ensuing timeframe, or even just in the last year. But when you think to think about the totality of it, how has it helped you prepare for other challenges in your life? Maybe times when you get knocked down or something happens that, you know, obviously you didn't plan for, you didn't want. How's this experience helped you? Well, it's not things that you want to discover um, and know the lessons that you've learned out of tragedy. Um, but things like I have a very high stress tolerance. Mm. Um, I, and, you know, that, that has occurred because I just kind of push through. So I have a very high stress tolerance. Um, from, you know, uh, living a life of alcoholism in my family, I have, I have the ability to read people very well. Um, I really never knew the source of why I could read people very well, but that is one of the things that you learn, um, in, uh, living in a life of alcohol that you interpret moods very well. Um, is that something that's been researched? I've never heard that, but that's fascinating. I think what I hear you saying is as a result of the experiences, especially with addiction and alcoholism, you're better now at reading people. Um, and I'm guessing uh, certainly folks that may have addiction issues, but but does that even translate into people that don't have addiction issues? So, the, and, and I learned all of this from Googling, really, Mike, because I, like you said, I've done a lot of self-exploration and I'm a very analytical person. Um, also, probably from living in my head and not my heart for the last 25 years. Um, so that's kind of a pro and a con there. But... In the life of alcohol, and you learn this in, in Al-Anon, but in the life of alcohol, when behavior is sporadic, and, and this is any addiction, but when behavior is sporadic, then it's called, what I call it reading the tea leaves, that you know the temperature in the house, um, you know the warning signs in the house when violence is about to explode, and I knew that I was very good at reading people. That has made me super successful in my career, but it's only been in the last four or five months that I ever knew where that came from. Well, that gave me an insight. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm decent at reading people because you're right. You're able to understand kind of what a control group looks like. And then when things are off, maybe even by just 1%, you're like, something is going on and you know, there's something more there. I've never... I've never thought about that. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. But, but you were going down, I, I interrupted you. You were going down this path of kind of, you know, how this has prepared you for other challenges in your life um, beyond reading people. Uh, or if you want to continue down that path and explain your thoughts on that, uh, what else is there? Well, um, so I think, you know, it's, made me quite successful in career and raising children and uh, also in community service work because this is like a pro-con situation that I look at this, but I filled up every waking moment with task and busy work to keep from feeling emotion. Mm. So when I did that, 
I was quite successful because I was highly driven to push away the emotion. So, you know, I wrote, I was, you know, a VP in a Fortune 500 by the time I was 40. I was raising three children and working full time. I had an MBA. I had three certifications. So now that, you know, those seem like badges of honor. And now I think, oh my God, that was escapism. <laughs> I mean, I think, does this go back to the point you made a few minutes ago where you said I was leading from my head and not my heart? And it sounds like that actually made you by the way that we deem success in the country, very successful. Um, but I think now that you reflect back, you're like, you know, is that the success that I now value? I, I think what it helps me do Mike with our clients, and this is part of the reason that I had to go on this journey is that when I am consultation with my clients now, And I see all of these, what I call badges of honors, like I have two master's degrees or I'm only one of certain people that are certified in this. The warning bells go off for me and that why are you trying to get validation from this? And I don't think I would have thought that way six months ago. Well, it almost feels like you're changing the way that you deem yourself worthy to the world. It's like maybe these extrinsic extrinsic things that everybody recognizes as being a value were important to you, but now you're starting to figure out that there's a different way to engage with people and, and quite frankly, maybe a different way to measure the impact that you're making on this world. Well, I want clients to reach the goals that they want to reach. Right. And, you know, I am more leery myself now of external measures of success because for me, and I, I can't speak for other people, for me, I look back and those external measures of success, I was trying to get some sort of validation externally. And now maybe because I'm older or maybe because I've gone through this process or both, I don't value that anymore. Yeah, I wish, you know, it's funny. It's like you realize this stuff when you're like old, not that you're old, but I'm old now. And it's like, why couldn't I have figured this out 20 or 25 years ago? I'd be in such a better place. So, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I mean, it could be, it comes with, with age, but I know plenty of people that are younger and are very clear on what they value. Um, I just think that for me to go through this process and talk about it and do all this exploration, the point is to serve and continue to serve the best way that I can. What about, is there anything that you've learned specifically about yourself over the last year? Uh, Well, I wrote down a few notes here. One, One, and this is going to seem kind of cliche, but I think you have to say it and that surviving is not thriving. I've learned that about myself. And so surviving to me was like you said, I've got a great job. I have three kids. I live in a nice house, have a wonderful husband, but I really wasn't thriving personally. Do you think you knew that the whole time or was it 
I guess, did it come to that morning in December where you're like, I'm not happy with what I'm doing? I think I knew something was wrong. <laughs> I just didn't know what it was. I think for many, many, many years, I knew something was wrong. Because over the course of the last 25 to 30 years, I have been in therapy a few times. Um, but never for very long, right? Like I would go to sessions for five or six times and say, oh, I feel better. So I'm done. And so I think I've always known something was wrong. And I say wrong, that I wasn't feeling how I should right. be appreciative and feel. Yeah, I think, Mitha, probably one of the reasons why you and I both have gotten into this new profession is for a deep need to help people. And what I, what I find fascinating, I'm sure you see this quite a bit as well, and it oftentimes is not because of the griefs that you've gone through, but there's so many people that are out there that are kind of plugging away at work or in their life where they're, where they're not happy, where they're not feeling fulfilled, or there's no joy in their life. And they get caught up in the swirl of, you know, having to do the work because they've got kids are going to go to college or they've got, um, you know, an ego that requires a certain job title or money or whatever. And it just blows me away that we are in this situation right now in this world where more than half, more than easily more than half of people are just feeling rudderless and that life isn't going the way that they want. And they just keep going along, just keep plugging along, unhappy until maybe something significant happens and it wakes them up. Um, I don't know if that's what you're seeing, but that's certainly like, like my little sample size of the people I engage with. That's where people are at. Well, um, it may be the case, but what I can say is that this process for myself has been hard as heck. Mm. So it's not easy to address for everyone. Um, and you mentioned that, yes, I have been working a lot. It's been hard. It's been a process. And so if what you're saying is true, there are people out there that could be avoiding, you know, uncovering the real root of, you know, their lack of sense of fulfillment. So Mitha, talk to them for a minute, because once again, if, if my gut instinct is right, the majority of the people listening to this feel that way. If they don't want to address this underlying issue, but they know in their gut they should, what would you say to them? Like, what can they do to start or how can they get over that hump, that thing that's holding them back? I, I think they have to self-reflect in a fashion that says I am or am not, am or am not happy with where I am. Um, and do I want to make a change? So let's use a coaching example. So people can come forward and say, I have a goal. Okay. It can be a personal goal. It could be a career goal. It could be like a skill development goal. That is your goal. Then you have awareness, right? Okay. What is the deficit? Like I'm not communicating more effectively or whatever, whatever it is. But that's the second stage. The third stage is actually having the willpower, the guts, the will to work on it. Hmm. I think that's great advice. One of the things that I've been thinking about through this conversation is the fact that a lot of times people don't like to relive real trauma, like what you went through. 
What about, what would you say to them? I mean, it's obviously not easy. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it took you so long, but it's not easy to go through that. Advice for them? Well, I'm going to explain another thing that I learned in uh, my grieving process. Um, that I think when I started my grieving process 27 years ago, I think there's been a change in the concept and that grief is not a linear process. So back 30 years ago, they talked about the stages of grief and that uh, I was under the perception and I went to therapy right after my mother was killed too. So I went then is that I would walk through the stages of grief. Okay. Well, what I know now is there's no linear process for grief. Okay, and that you um, don't just get over grief um, and you don't get, you know, it done with the process. You have to walk through it and you have to move through it and you could actually relive it. So that is the painful part of, you know, yes, I had a traumatic grief that I was dealing with, but there's all types of complicated grief. So a complicated grief could be you lost, you know, a child in a car accident suddenly. Um, it could be that two of your parents died within a week of each other for, from COVID. Those are types of complicated grief. And so I have learned that it is not just a process. It's that it is something lifelong that you have to live with. One of the things that I've thought about over the last several years, just given, you know, when I share with other people challenges I've gone through, it opens my eyes to recognize that you, you never know. And this is one of the things I say is you never know the devil someone's dealing with. You really don't because oftentimes people don't share. How has this experience influenced how you interact with people um, who may be rude or mean to you or, you know, I don't know, treat you the way you would expect them to? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because another thing I have learned so much, another thing that I have learned is that when you are interacting people with people, you really don't know their side of the equation, right? And so um, one of the things that I learned in grief class is that every person's grief is different. And so, you know, the relationship could have been a very, very close one, or it may not have been a close one. And so you cannot make assumptions about the other people, you other person, you have to just accept them for what they are and, and deal with it. And it has also given me a lot more empathy and less judgment, because I really don't know what's behind that person. I love that. I'm glad I'm asking these questions. I'm learning a lot about managing grief and, and some of these tips and techniques. So, so thank you for sharing that. I do want to pivot, Mitha, because a lot of the conversation has been you know, the challenges that you've been through, especially over the last year in, in dealing with grief. Obviously, going back a few decades where your mom was murdered, living a good life, but, but always knowing that there was something else out there, whether that was, you know, a need to manage this grief or even doing something differently. Um, so maybe you can share what you're doing today. That's one of the reasons why I created this podcast is I'm really drawn to people 
who have been dealt a, a, a bad deck of hands or deck of cards, excuse me, but somehow figured out how they could live a purposeful uh, and impactful life. And that's what you're doing now. So can you talk about what you're doing today? Yeah. So right now, um, I am applying these concepts that I learn in my coaching practice and I'm, uh, educating people, um, with certain life challenges. People are dealing with addiction in their family, uh, life after loss, uh, parents that are dealing with medically fragile children, really talking to these groups, helping them understand that there are resources out there and trying to take some of the sting of being alone. And it's only me going through that. So you're talking about um, the fact that you're a coach now. I think everybody, um, at least in the corporate world, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people probably have experienced some different types of coaching, but I think oftentimes they may not know exactly what coaching is or maybe what coaching can be. Can you talk about now that you're in this world of, of coaching people, how you work with with clients and and why it could be valuable to them and maybe some misnomers because I will say one thing when I got into this you know I I had a coach um, you know during my time at my previous company and it was okay but it really didn't move the needle on on where I was at to where I wanted to be uh, but I don't think that's necessarily the case especially with a coach like you so can you talk about coaching and the impact that it can make yeah so basically i I like if it's okay with you i'll explain the difference between coaching and therapy because some people you utilize both together or separately that would be great yeah so therapy um works mostly with mental health and trauma for affected people and it's to understand the past so it's more like a healing perspective what happened in the past and how to move that person from like a dysfunctional area to a functional area where coaching works on the future. Coaching takes functioning people um, that are, I would say, mostly successful in their life and to create a future path um, for achieving goals. So I like to say that it takes a, a functional person and it makes them an exceptional person. And the way they do that is through whatever goal they have for themselves. So it could be a relationship goal. It could be a financial goal. It could be a career goal. Um, but it helps them take their current state and I say elevate it to something that's even better than it is today. I love that. One of, one of the experiences I had with my coaches, I felt like the conversations were pretty good but nothing came out of it. What do you do when you work with clients? It almost sounds like an infomercial now, but I, I think it's really important that you share how you're making an impact on your clients' lives. But um, how do you work with your clients to ensure that they're moving forward? So the techniques that we use as a coach are to really understand their goals, have them articulate their goals, and then help them hold themselves accountable for that. So there's a variety of tools that we use, but the underlying thing is to really, once they state their goal and accept that they want to go through a change process to make it happen, is to help hold them accountable mm. for that. 
And the feedback that we get is that they really, like I said, um, I'm trying to give you a specific example. Um, I had um, a client, um, it's actually a work setting, had a client that um, did not have good relationships with her boss. And, you know, recently she just said that she has a whole new perspective and she wants to stay at her job. She understands so much better. And to me, that's a great outcome because she thought she would have to leave her job. But now she's generally satisfied with her working condition. That is a great, that's a great case study. Is there a specific area, you know, if somebody's listening to this or like, I'm really connecting with Mitha. Is there a certain area that you like to work with clients on? Well, I like to work with people that have personal challenges. I call them pebbles in the road. They're not a boulder, right? But pebbles in the road, the things that they want to make better. And that could be um, things like life after loss. You know, you've gone through the grieving process. What, what does your life look like next? Um, it could be, um, you know, I have a couple of clients where they have medically fragile children, so they get a diagnosis or a health diagnosis. What's the plan forward? Um, I even have some parenting, you know, clients where, you know, just teenage years, empty nesters, those kind of things. So it's really about transitions and challenges that are in life. I love that. The one thing you talked earlier about is accountability. And I'll say one of my primary observations, and this is just with coaching, this is a lot of the things that I've done um, in my life, but you come up with an incredible plan. Like oftentimes I, I don't find it that difficult to come up with a great plan. Now I'm not minimizing that, but people usually have it within them. Meaning like, oh, I kind of think I know what I need to do. So I, I find that you can get to that point you know, with some work where I find it falling down for many people is accountability. It's like the, how do I do it? Do you have any insights or perspectives with the clients that you've worked with to identify things so that people actually do what they say, not only that they say they're going to do, but where they really want to do it, but for whatever reason, life gets in the way and they don't. And then they look back years later with regret. Well, uh, I'm going to use another kind of analogy, the difference between consulting and coaching. So, um, or even like therapy maybe, but in consulting, you tell somebody what to do. Okay. So I'm going to make an example. You know, you might be happier if you weren't in this role, but you're in this role over here because it makes more money and um, has a fancier title and then you won't be complaining about money. That's more like consulting. With coaching, the way I find that helps people hold accountable is every idea is theirs. So when you explore their goals, they come up with the action plan. We have a set of techniques that we use where they have 100% buy-in because it was completely their idea. It was never my idea. So when it's your idea, you tend to do it. Um, you know, and if you don't do it, then there was a block on why you didn't do it. And we explore that and you come up with another action plan. We just keep working it. We don't give up. Yeah, you said two things that I think are really important. First of all, 
you can tell somebody until you're blue in the face to do something. And I could say this uh, with 100% certainty because I've got three kids. And if it's not their idea, they're not going to do it. Or if they do do it, they're doing it begrudgingly and they won't be consistent. Um, so I think that is an unbelievably important point. And then the second thing you said, which I think is important, is oftentimes it's not just about executing on the item that may be on the plan, but there may actually be something that is significant that's holding them back, something that you know doesn't allow them to proceed that you really need to identify. And, and maybe in your circumstances, it was the grief of something that you were dealing with many, many years ago. Uh, but there's oftentimes something that is holding people back. And I think that's that's important. Well, it is. And that when I used that term red herring earlier, yep. and that I thought the career, my career was the root issue, which it was not the root issue. So I started down two simultaneous paths. So I started down the path to explore doing something different with my career, but I also went back to therapy. And so it turns out that the, the career, while I am more fulfilled, it was not it was a red herring and so with um coaching um if somebody comes up with a plan for move to a to b and for some reason it's not working then we go back to the table and figure out what it is and what's supposed to be on the table and what order it should be in Mitha, i do want to go back to the fact that not only did you make this significant breakthrough in your personal life, you've also now moved on to a different role. We've been talking about it for the last 10 minutes, coaching. But if I were talking to you a year ago, you still would have been sitting in corporate life. So I'm curious because a lot of the folks that I talk to, and once again, I think the challenge a lot of people have is they want to do something different. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, they just don't pull the trigger. Maybe it's security or you know, what would people think? What guidance now do you have to somebody that is thinking about doing something different, but that doesn't have the confidence or doesn't believe that they'll make it, or they come up with a thousand reasons why not to do it? Well, that's a really good question because there, you know, there are many reasons not to do it, but I think that's the beauty of of coaching is that to explore that it's okay to say, I think I want to do something or I have this idea I want to do and lay it out. But the first step is, this is what I say. Like when clients come to me and they say, I'm like, you use the word stuck, Mike, that's, that's a term you use, but if they're in a holding pattern and they're not moving forward on whatever goal it is, say they, can want to consider going out on their own and leaving the corporate setting that they have to take the first step by saying they want to do something about it. And so when you hire a coach or you have somebody, an accountability partner, it doesn't have to be a coach. You have somebody that you're accountable to, then you want to, you know, do it for yourself and do it for whoever you're accountable to. Mitha, how do you think, your story of your mom and the grief that you've been through, how did that play into you leaving your corporate job and moving into coaching? Do you think it accelerated it or do you think it held you back or, or maybe it just had no impact? Oh, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, I, <laughs> I think that it's kind of the reverse and that I probably would not have gone through this grief process 
had I not decided to switch careers. That's the way I look at it because I, and it's a cop out if I say it this way, but I kind of feel this way that while I was working 50, 60 hours a week and raising a family, that's all I had time to do. I didn't have time to do anything else. Okay. And so when I left the corporate setting, I get to make my schedule, right? And so it doesn't mean that I don't work 50, 60 hours a week, but I could work at 6.30 a.m. if I want to, you know what I'm saying? And go to the grocery store at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And so I think it gave me the mind freedom to explore the underlying root issue. So I really think that that's how it played out, that had I stayed in the corporate setting, I may not have gone through this grief process. It's funny, you said when you started to answer the question that it's a cop-out. That is one of the best answers I've ever heard because as you were sharing that, I was thinking in my own mind, are there things that I brushed under the rug while I was in corporate life? And and I think what you what you really said was, I was so damn busy I wasn't stopping and thinking about what was really going on in my mind and in my life. I was just, you know, doing the things that a great mom needs to do, making money, taking care of my kids. And so these things are just flying by, like you're moving through life and you're not necessarily going deep on the things that matter. And now that you've opened up some time and space, you can think about these things. And I'll say, Mitha, the reason why that resonates is that's absolutely true with me that I've use this opportunity over the last several months to just pause and to think about what really matters. And also um, the things that potentially have positively and negatively impacted me in the past and how I can use that so that I could be a better person, a better father, better at everything in my life. So I, I think that is a fantastic answer. So I appreciate that. And I think the learning or the lesson to many is find a way to pause so that you could see these things and don't let life just pass you by. Yeah, I I like the way you said it. Yes, I mean that I didn't say that directly. I said it indirectly, and I love the way you summed it up because that's I that whole concept of mind space. I have the mind space to do it, um, and it helps me use my heart more and think about in a conscious way the way I want to show up. Yeah, you know what? It's funny that you say that because one of the first things you said during our conversation was you know, you were so in your head and now you've moved to your heart. And maybe that's what taking some time to pause and to think about your life has allowed you to do is just to get outside of your head a little and get into your heart. Yeah, I can give you an example because I've uh, been, I'm a, a person that takes a daily walk. I have been doing that for, I don't know, 25, 27 years. And I've changed the way. So I used to walk every day um, and I've always done it in the morning. It's like what is on my radar in that day and any problems or issues that I may be facing at work. And now, um, and this is actually something I worked on with my coach, um, not my therapist. I told my uh, coach that I wanted to have a different way of reflecting every day. And so I try to spend half of my walk in reflection, like what has happened and be appreciative and grateful for what has happened and then do half of it for like, you know, strategic thinking, planning, that kind of thing. Yeah. I love that. I, uh, I've become a big fan of my morning walk. It's actually part of my morning routine with my, my one-year-old lab, 
which is the best part of my day. And I oftentimes find that my best ideas, maybe everybody doesn't think they're the best ideas, but at least they seem pretty good to me during the walk, always come up kind of serendipitously as I'm just walking walking along our streets, listening to maybe a podcast or maybe not listening to a podcast, but looking at my dog smiling. Things just come to me. So um, kudos to the daily walk. It's definitely a great routine to get into. Yes, yes. I'm thankful for it. So it's, well, you know what the other, even you just saying thankful, it's funny because I was thinking about this the other day and I'm like, literally one of my favorite things to do during the course of the day is to walk with my dog. And going back to the point of like, what does success look like? That costs absolutely nothing to walk through your neighborhood. And it gives me probably more joy than anything else. Yeah, it's simple things like taking a walk, writing in a journal that costs absolutely nothing. Um, But to me, it's a very good um, process for your heart and your mind. And so, yeah, it's amazing the things that you think, you know, you want to do things and they cost money. There's a lot of things in this world that don't cost any money at all. Well, and give you a tremendous amount of joy. Yeah. So we're going to start to wrap this up, Mitha. I've got a few final questions. The The first one really focuses on, once again, that individual out there. Now that they've heard your entire story, not everything, but a lot of it, um, you've been unbelievably successful. I don't even remember how many countries you traveled to. You had an incredible job. Uh, you've got great kids. You've got a marriage that has broken the statistics. Um, most don't last till 27 years, which is ironic. I don't know if I told you this, but my wife and I were born in 95. So, or not born, married in, in uh, 95. And so it sounds like we may have the uh, same number of years married, which is kind of cool. Well, congratulations. Yeah we, yeah, we just passed 27 years a few months ago. But you have this incredible life, but you also dealt with something unbelievably traumatic, something that you know stays with you to this day, something you've been working through over the last year. There are a lot of people out there that have trauma. What would you, when you think about your story, what are some of the most important things that you share with people that may have trauma, not exactly like yours, but something else that is potentially holding them back or maybe that they haven't fully realized or appreciated? Well, um, I think one of my lessons learned is just you have to seek help in whatever way that you want to seek help but I would not advise to hold it in. That is not a story that I'm proud of in terms of, I have learned a lot of lessons from that, um, but it's probably not the most ideal way to deal with something very traumatic is to come forward and speak up and try to deal with it as soon as you can in a professional way. And I say professional, whatever method works for you, but deal with it. Well, and and one of the things that you have talked a lot about, which I think is important is, you know, the value of Google and I'm not being facetious, but you had talked about, there's a tremendous number of resources that are out there that people can access. You just got to start to look. Yeah. I'll give you an example because five years ago, I also went to therapy, um, for grief for my mother. And again, at that time I thought I had moved through the grief process, but I hadn't. But she used a term that I had never heard in my life. She called me an adult child of an alcoholic. Mm. And I was like, she said, she told me to Google that. She says, I need you to look it up, research it, and come back to our next session and tell me what you learned. 
And that is a label that I have now, but I learned so much from what that is. And so the value, and it sounds so corny sometimes, but the value of putting your specific situation in Google, the amount of education that's available to you is just limitless. It's it's limitless as the internet. It is amazing. I'm actually working on something I'm not going to talk about yet, but I am doing research and I'm blown away by the ability to pull unbelievable research and insights out there because a lot of people have already done the hard work. A couple final questions. So I'm really curious because there's a lot of people that may be listening to this and then they're like, oh, well, Mitha's life sounds great now, but geez, I'm really going through a difficult time. And so I guess the question I have for you, Mitha, is, you know, how do you find purpose in life after something so traumatic? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know that I could give you the specific answer to that. But one of the things that I discovered is that everything is a life lesson. That's as simple as that. Right. It, 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 well, it is interesting because... I do hold a belief and I have for many years. It's like the best parts of me, which many people probably can make some jokes because maybe there's not that many great parts of me, but but they can absolutely be traced back to the hardships that I've had in my life. And one of the things I'll take it even a step further. I don't think there's a lot of great things about me when things are going great. Like, I don't know if I learn or if I've stretched myself or done things differently when, when I'm kind of high flying, when everything's great. And it truly is to those you know, challenging times, I'll just call them, you know, that I I think I've created the most positive change in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a person that, you know, this is probably something that helped me survive is I don't look to the past. So after that happened with my mother, I didn't dwell in it. I moved on. I like said, okay, I have to move on. Well, I kind of moved on too quickly. I learned that now. But it's helped me in life and that I don't look in the rearview mirror that much. Yeah. I think that's obviously just with everything you've accomplished. I think that's absolutely true. So before I ask my final, final question, um, where can people find you? If they're like, whoa, I'd like to have Mitha as my coach, uh, where can they go to find you? Well, um, my company name is called Meet the Peak, P-E-A-K, and I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook, my company is. I also have personal pages. Um, my name is Mitha, M-E-T-H-A, Vasquez, V-A-S-Q-U-E-Z. And I have a personal Facebook and LinkedIn pages as well. Awesome. And you are open for business. So if, once again, anybody likes what they hear from Mitha or, you know, you connected with her in a way over a podcast, absolutely reach out to her. I think uh, she can provide a lot of value. I've, I've gotten to know Mitha quite well over the last few months, and I think the world of her. So Mitha, my final, final question. Um, and you know, this goes back to the reflection of this journey that you've been on, uh, you know, obviously losing your mother, taking a few decades to really working through the grief to being very successful over the years. And now, you know, many people would say taking a big risk, starting your own coaching business. When you think about this journey that you've been on, and this goes to the name of the podcast, Time to Sing Your Song, I believe everybody's got a song inside of them. Can you share the song that really speaks to the journey that you've been on? Yes. 
so I, I had trouble with this because I had a two in very stiff competition okay. for this. But <laughs> I, I went with um, Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. And that song in the chorus specifically is about not being your true self. And the journey to find your, tr your true self. Yeah, as I was saying, it's about your journey to find your true self. I love that. And 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 you're there. Or you're certainly a lot closer than you were a few years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's what I learned is that I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. I think there's a lot of beauty in being able to, first of all, realize that that's your goal in life. And I don't know if we ever reach our true self, you know, per se, but the journey can be amazing. And, uh, you know, my journey has brought me in touch with you, uh, Mitha, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful. I remember when I started the program that you and I both were in, I remember saying, well, there's three reasons I'm doing it. One, it'd be good to get certified in coaching, but I don't know if that's the most important reason. Two, I may learn something, uh, which is kind of an egotistical comment. Of course, I'd learn a lot. And the number one reason I wanted to do it was to meet people that I otherwise had not come in contact with. So I'm, I'm unbelievably grateful for that and the program giving me that and for the program giving, you know, you to me, I'm glad that our paths have crossed. And I really, Mitha, appreciate you sharing this story. I mean, I remember once again, going back to that call when you said, Hey, I've got a story, you know, we were kind of jovial and joking before then it just made me pause. And once again, it goes back to that comment. I didn't know that was something that you had gone through. And I had a whole different view on who you are and, and obviously just the resilience you as a, as a mom, as a professional had, you know, exercised. And now the fact that you're really living your song and doing something that gives you great fulfillment. So Mitha, thank you so much for being open and vulnerable and transparent. You don't understand how much your words are going to impact people, especially those that are going through trauma. I think you've given some really great ideas for what people can do. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it and it's a great experience for me and I wish you the best with your podcast and giving people this opportunity. So I appreciate you having me today. Thanks, Mitha. Wow, that was, that was heavy. Mitha, thank you for sharing your story. You're an inspiration to all of us who've had real pain in our lives. You've showed what it takes to come to grips with grief so that you can live a life you truly deserve. Let me leave you with my top takeaways from my time with Mitha. First, everyone, and I mean everyone, is dealing with something, maybe not to the extent of what Mitha was going through. I try not to forget that when I interact with people, just because they may not share it doesn't mean it's not there. Second, sometimes the reason we are looking to make a change in our life is because of something much deeper. And while it may not be easy, it's pretty damn important to deal with it when it surfaces, even if it happened many, many years ago. Third, every experience, especially the bad ones, has something to offer. So ask yourself, like Mitha did, what can I learn from the situation and how can it make me a better person? So I'm on the hunt for great stories of people who were once lost and now are singing their song. Hit me up if you have a great story or if you know somebody that does. On social media, Michael Kearney on LinkedIn or mkearney33 on Twitter. You can even email me at mike at timetosingyoursong.com. 
Until next time, start singing your song today because, as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it be something good. <laughs>